In 2012, in a trailer park in Alabama, human remains would be found, several pieces, over several days. The discovery would lead to a hunting mystery involving a young girl who showed signs of a traumatic life in her short years alive, a mystery that haunts dedicated investigators to this day. This is Midwest Mystery Files, Episode 10, The Opelika Jane Doe. Hello everyone, we're a few days late this week, but welcome to Midwest Mystery Files. I'm your host Jeremiah, with just a few quick things before we start. Midwest Mystery Files is a bi-weekly, true crime podcast focused on unsolved missing and murdered cases within the Midwestern region of the United States. I can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Amazon Music, Audible, Google Podcasts, and all other major podcast platforms. I also want to note that you might have noticed at the beginning of the episode, I said the word Alabama. Now, this isn't a Midwestern state, and I just want to explain a little bit. I had always planned on doing a few out-of-region cases here and there. I initially intended to wait past episode 10, possibly past episode 20, to start doing those cases. However, this is a very important case to me. It's been on my mind quite a bit. I've thought about it quite a bit since I first heard about it a few years ago, and it might be the case I check on the most often for updates. So it's kind of been eating at me lately, and I decided to go ahead and put it out there. It's probably going to be a little bit more of a short one, but I just, I'll say this at the end, but I'm going to say it now. I just implore you to share the resources that will be available with this case, because as you'll find out, this is a little girl who really deserves to have her name back. So, with, uh, without further ado, we will get on to today's episode. Opelika is a city of about 30,000 that serves as the county seat of Lee County in east-central Alabama. Within the city of Opelika, located on the 1700 block of Hearst Street, just to the north of Interstate 85, is the Brookhaven Trailer Park. Based from what one can see on Google Maps, the trailer park contains approximately 45 to 50 homes, not a small park, but also not huge by any means. Average and unassuming, it looks like a number of any other similar locations sitting throughout the country. However, on Saturday, January 28, 2012, at approximately 11 a.m., things would be anything but normal in Brookhaven Trailer Park. It was a clear morning with temperatures in the 60s, a young resident of the park was spending the morning outside in his backyard, located towards the back end of Brookhaven. The nice, cooler air of the morning would soon become colder, though, when the young resident would come across a human skull. Police and investigators and representatives from the coroner's office would soon arrive and secure the area. A search of the area would commence, but nothing else would be found that first day. Investigators would tell the press that they believed the skull belonged to a young child, possibly between the ages of 5 and 7 years old. Opelika would call on help from the Lee County Sheriff's Office, as well as the nearby Auburn Police Department, and the three departments would perform grid searches of the area to search for more remains. On February 1st, police would announce that over the course of two days, they had found more remains in the area where the initial skull was found, as well as an area adjacent to the initial discovery area. Captain Bruce DeLong, with Opelika PD, would tell the press that the remains would have to be sent to the Alabama Department of Forensic Science before anything more could be found out, as the police were uncertain if all the remains were related or if some could possibly belong to an animal. 
A child's pink shirt with heart buttons and pink ruffles near the neck was also found, although it has never been determined if it was related to the case or not. The first update would come on February 7, 2012, when Lee County Coroner Bill Harris would announce that the victim's cause of death was a probable homicide. Few other details were known at the time, though, such as gender, age, or ethnicity. Authorities would begin a search through missing persons reports, as well as schools, churches, and social services, to try and get a lead on any children that may have had disappeared or not been seen in a while, all in hopes that they could sooner identify the unknown victim. This would prove futile, though, with no potential matches being found. They would also do a full sweep of the trailer park and speak with the residents. Some residents would note that they did recall a strong smell of something decaying during the previous summer of 2011. No further clues to the child's identity could be uncovered, however. The child's remains would then be sent to the FBI's crime lab in Quantico, Virginia for further analysis, and in May of 2012, new details would be released. Details that only added more bothersome points to an already bothersome case. The FBI was able to conclude the victim was a female of African-American descent. She was between the ages of 4 and 7 years old. She had underdeveloped teeth and bones consistent with malnourishment and showed signs of physical abuse, including a damaged left eye. She had black, shoulder-length hair, styled into tight curls. Due to not all bones being recovered, an approximate height was unable to be made. She had most likely been deceased between 8 months and 2 years. Armed with this new information, police would continue to appeal to the public for help, asking anyone who knew who this young girl may be to come forward. The FBI would also release and distribute a recreation of what Jane Doe might have looked like when alive. Despite this, however, investigators found little in results. Police began to speculate that due to her potential abuse, the young girl may not have been exposed to the public, with Sergeant Richard Converse telling CBS in 2014, I think this child was not exposed to the general public, and that's possibly why she was able to go unnoticed. The type of injuries explained to us would have been very debilitating. It's really horrible. The case would go cold almost immediately. However, investigators would not be deterred. They would continue to have photos distributed, continue to canvass the area, and follow up on any and all tips that would be sent their way. They were determined to find out who this young girl was, who had had her life taken away from her. A potential lead would finally surface in 2016. In August of that year, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children would release a composite image of the young girl and what she may have looked like when alive. It was at this time, after seeing the photo, when an employee of the Greater Peace Baptist Church would be reminded of a young girl who had attended a vocational Bible school or VBS camp, in 2011, who matched what Jane Doe may have possibly looked like when alive. Not only did they remember the girl, but they had pictures as well. The photos depict a young African-American girl, approximately around the age of five, who appears to have an eye deformity in her left eye. The girl appears to have attended the camp on at least two separate days, as one photo shows her in a pink t-shirt, while the other shows her in a lighter colored shirt under a denim dress. The individual from the church would tell authorities that the girl did not interact with the other children, and that she seemed like she may have not been very well taken care of. The individual would also inform investigators that they did not have the girl's name. 
You may be asking yourself, how does a program like this not have a record of who attended and where they may have come from? Well, from all my years of looking at this case, as well as reading through several Reddit threads on the matter, it apparently isn't uncommon for those sort of programs in the South to just send buses out to nearby neighborhoods, and whoever gets on the bus is apparently who attends. Parents are also free to drop kids off as needed, and no real attendance roster is kept. The greater piece of EBS program was one such circumstance, as they kept no records at the time as to who attended the camps. If the girl in the photos was Jane Doe, authorities would still have a lot of work to do to identify her. Police wasted little time getting the young girl's photo distributed, as well as looking through church records to see if they could find anything that might lead to the identity of the young girl. Both would prove futile, though. Despite being a girl who would most likely be recognizable due to the eye condition, there still seemed to be absolutely no one who recognized who the young girl was. At least not anyone who was willing to come forward. This would only make investigators more determined to find out the identity of the young girl. Captain Bobby Kilgore would tell OANow.com in 2017. That's been the biggest lead, but it did not lead to anything. We absolutely owe it to her to get her identified. She had a name. She had a life. We want to know about it. In 2017, isotope testing was performed to try and narrow down if the girl was possibly from somewhere other than Alabama. If you remember from the St. Louis Jane Doe episode, isotopic testing is using the information in DNA to uncover what region an individual was from based on using information stored in the DNA related to what an individual may have consumed while alive. In this case, matches to water in various regions is what is used. The testing found that Jane Doe was most likely from the southeastern region of the USA in a grouping of states that did include Alabama. This would only deepen the mystery. There was still a likelihood that she was from Alabama, but she could very well be from any number of surrounding states. Upon the release of the new information, Mayor Gary Fuller would tell OANow.com, It's difficult for me to believe that no one has come forward about this little girl. We don't know where the child was from or how she came to be in the location where she was found. To say the least, it has been a gut-wrenching case for the fine officers of the Opelika Police Department. We're certainly not giving up, and hopefully one day, someone will share information that will help solve this. The case would sit quiet again for several years, with no more movement coming until 2020. The movement, unfortunately, was nothing new in the way of tips or leads, but still something that may yet prove helpful. In May of 2020, Opelika police would release enhanced photos of the ones released in 2016, in hopes that the sharper images would help someone remember who may not have yet came forward. Opelika police at this time would also further profess their determination to solve the case, and give the young girl her name back, while at the same time bringing her killer or killers to justice. They would also continue to stress how much the public may be able to help. Police Captain Shane Healy would tell WRBL.com, It's a case that sticks with you, and what we want more than anything is to put a name with that face. She was badly abused and lived a tough life, and there is nothing fair about what she had to go through at all. We hope we can give her a small amount of justice if we can find out her name. With the public's help, we hope to be able to give this little girl a name and solve the mystery of what happened to her. It's been over a year now since that last round of photos was released. And so far, 
the case still seems to be quiet as ever. And despite police dedication, as well as cries for help to the public, the young girl, whose life was taken from her and then was disposed of like trash, has yet to be identified. At this point, we're basically only left with theories. In a case like this, theorizing really isn't too difficult. While it's all speculation, it's also impossible not to come to the conclusion that whoever had a hand in this poor girl's death was probably extremely close to the girl, most likely, and I'm going to use this word very loosely, her parents or a parent. The girl was clearly abused, neglected, malnourished, and for the most part hidden away from the public. While that makes it strange that her parents would allow her to attend a VBS camp, given the eye deformity and her lack of communication, I have little doubt in my mind that the girl in the photo is indeed our Jane Doe. Think about it. While this isn't exactly a well-known case in the broad spectrum of things, the case has been kept in the spotlight in Alabama for years. The photo of the young girl has been distributed again and again and again. And excuse my language, but there's not one fucking person, not so much as a goddamn mailman, who recognizes her. Absolutely no one in the Opelika area recognizes a young black girl with an eye deformity. I could be wrong, but I feel that the young girl and our Jane Doe are one and the same, and as I said before, she was clearly kept away from everybody. One can only assume that her unfortunate death came soon after the VBS photos were taken, seeing as how the residents of the Brookhaven trailer park noted the rotting smell that same summer. If I had to guess, she was most likely thrown in the thick trees at the back of the court, and to add insult to injury, an animal drug her remains out into the open. Which, if any positive spin could be put to that, at least it means her remains were found sooner rather than later. Regardless of what happened to Jane Doe, whether she was straight up murdered by a parent, or the abuse went too far one night and she died as a result, she was just thrown to the side like she was nothing. Even if she maybe strolled too far from her home and was hit by a driver, and then still thrown like trash by that individual, the parents still didn't care enough to report her missing or to go looking for her. The case is so sad and frustrating. This isn't like the St. Louis Jane Doe, where there was no head to even make a composite of. This isn't like the boy in the box or Little Miss Nobody. 1950 cases where it was harder to get information out to the broader public and to narrow down information through DNA. This is a case where we have a probable location of where she came from and a photo that has a high probability of being Jane Doe. I really feel like this case should be solvable. As of right now, there's no burial information available on Jane Doe, most likely because her remains are being held onto for further testing when needed. However, when the day comes that she does have a headstone, she deserves to have her real name attached to it. This poor girl was clearly treated poorly in life, and while she appears to have found more support in death than she did in life, she still has had to suffer the indignity of losing her name. I always encourage you to share this podcast to help bring awareness to, to the cases. This time, I'm asking you to share the photos of the young girl as well. I'll have them up on social media shortly after I publish this episode. If you don't have social media... They can be easily googled. I'll even email them to you if necessary. Even if we someday find out this girl is not our Jane Doe, then at least by identifying her, investigators will know now to turn their attention elsewhere. For now though, getting her identified is one of the most important things we can help with. If you have any information on the identity of the murder of the Opelika Jane Doe, please contact the Opelika Police Department at 334-705-5200. 
You can also submit an anonymous tip at 334-745-8665. If you're looking for any further information, there is a wealth of news articles as well as YouTube videos covering the case. If you want to let me know what you think happened, have case suggestions, or just want to follow me on social media, I can be found on Instagram at Midwest Mystery Files, Twitter at Files Midwest, or search for Midwest Mystery Files on Facebook. You can also email me at MidwestMysteryFilesPod at gmail.com. Lastly, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and you like what you've heard, feel free to rate and review. This makes the podcast more visible in searches, as well as brings more attention to the lesser-known cases I cover, such as this one. Thank you to everyone who has done so already. Take care, everyone, and I will see you all in two weeks.